Luke chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 31. And he, that means Jesus, that's the he there, and he went down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she, she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had anyone who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word this morning, as we try to see the stories that happen in this one day in the life of Jesus that Luke records for us so faithfully, we ask that you would help us to understand better who he is, to see Jesus more clearly, to see why there is such opposition to him and, and accolades for him. Father, we ask that you would do a mighty work in our lives, that Jesus would be seen clearly among us so that we would take sides so that we would know that we're for him or against him. There isn't any middle ground. That he isn't just a nice grandpa figure we look to. That he's the king of kings and lord of lords. The savior of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The tendency of man, we all know this, the tendency of man is to tame Jesus, isn't it? I just got two different waters. Thank you guys are so servant oriented. Look at that. I have choices now, okay? Do you really? Look at that. Hey, if anyone is thirsty, right? Let him come to me and drink. I have plenty of water. All right. Look, the tendency of man is to tame Jesus, isn't it? That's our tendency. We want to tame him. Some. We want him to be like us, really, in every way. Except, of course, we want him to be a little more spiritual than we are, right? And I, I don't want you to get me wrong when I'm going to say what I'm going to say. He was fully man. He had a human body and a human soul. He had a human mind and he had human emotions and he had human will. He grew and he learned. He got hungry and he got thirsty. He even grew in favor with God. 
He was tempted to sin in every way, just as we are. He was a man. However, he's also God. He's the King of kings, and he came to earth on a mission to save people into his kingdom, and that makes him exceedingly different than you and me. There's a liberal group you guys may have heard of, and I don't mean politically liberal. I have no idea what their political affiliations are, but theologically liberal group called the Jesus Seminar. And I don't know if you've heard of them, but the Jesus Seminar is a group of scholars um, who get together, and they essentially go through the Gospels, and they're really around in the 20th century and now into the 21st century, and they go through the Gospels, and what they do is they, they actually analyze what they think in the Gospels Jesus really said and really did, and what they think in the Gospels he didn't actually say and do. In other words, their sort of intellectually arrogant claim is that they have a better understanding of what Jesus actually said and did 2,000 years later than the apostles who wrote the Gospels did, right? And so they seem to think they have a handle on it, and so they go through and they actually get different beads of different colors, and they, they cast the beads and under the level of certainty that Jesus said or did something, and then they come to a determination, and then what they've done is put together a book. These are all the things Jesus said actually said and actually did their mission is to really reshape the jesus of the gospels to be the jesus that's acceptable to their scholarly opinions and amazingly if you read their work after it's all complete jesus that according to jesus seminar ends up looking remarkably like them he ends up looking remarkably like a 21st century liberal theologian because they've remade him in their own image. And, and we tend to do the same thing, don't we? We remake him too in some way. Our culture at large, even in the evangelical Christian culture, has made Jesus into some kind of generally acceptable teacher and practitioner of good morals, right? He cares for the poor. He's a kind of religious pluralist who's exceedingly tolerant. You know, the kind of guy that everyone likes. But that's not the picture we get of Jesus from Luke. Luke's emphasis in Jesus, or excuse me, in Luke's gospel, his emphasis on Jesus is really that Jesus is coming in the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God and that that divides people. As Jesus comes in the power of the Spirit proclaiming the gospel, things change in the area he comes to. And people either love him and adore him or they hate him and oppose him vigorously. There isn't any squishy middle ground. One thing is true, no matter where Jesus goes, things change. Nothing ever stays the same when Jesus arrives in the power of the Holy Spirit proclaiming the gospel. I want you to see how Luke emphasizes this Jesus is coming in the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel. Look at Luke chapter 3 in verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning their hearts concerning John the Baptist, they were asking him whether he might be the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the king who was promised to come and save them. They're asking, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He's going to separate. 
And He's coming. And He's coming in the power of the Holy Spirit. goes on. We continue to see Luke's emphasis. If you go to chapter 3, verse 21, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Go down to chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, that's that, there's that phrase again, the Holy Spirit with regard to Jesus, full of, the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit returned from Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Now go down to chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report went out about, about him, went out through all, all the surrounding country. Now go down to verse 18. Jesus unrolls the scroll of Isaiah and reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Just to confirm Jesus talking about himself, if you go down to verse 21, and he began to say to them, today the Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the one upon whom the Spirit of the Lord is. It's on me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And this goes on and on. We see this emphasis that Jesus is coming in the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the good news, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. And that's dividing people. People are taking sides. So here's the question. Why is there opposition to Jesus' coming? I I think we ought to ask ourselves, why would anybody oppose a Spirit-filled Messiah who's proclaiming good news. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at Luke chapter 4, verse 31 through 44, and as we look at that passage, I want to see if we can draw out the reason that Jesus coming in the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the gospel, causes such a definitive reaction and split. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at four scenes, okay? There are four scenes that Luke gives us here in, the, in one day of the life of Jesus, this is a Sabbath day. We don't know which one this is. We know this is after his baptism. We know this is after he came to Nazareth. So it's at least a year plus into his ministry, okay? Into his public ministry. At least a year plus into his public ministry. This one Sabbath day, Jesus goes to Capernaum. And all these events, all four scenes we're going to look at happen on this one day. And as we look at it, we're going to see why there's such strong support and such strong opposition to Jesus. So when we're looking at each scene, what I want you to do at each scene is I want you to contrast, I want you to see the contrast in the support versus the opposition, okay? That's your assignment. So go through each scene, I want you to see that contrast. So let's look at the first scene. The first scene is in the synagogue, that's like their church in Capernaum on the Sabbath. The people got together and went to church. So they did, okay? So in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he comes in. Verse 31, and he went down to Capernaum. And the reason he goes down to Capernaum, if you ever look on a map, you're going to notice that Nazareth, where he's coming from, is actually south of Capernaum, which is right by the Sea of Galilee. The reason he goes down is because Nazareth is so much higher in elevation. That's how they would mark going up or going down. Went down to Capernaum because he dropped in elevation considerably to go down next to the Sea of Galilee. A city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his, at his teaching, 
for his word possessed authority. In other words, Jesus came into the, sa- into the synagogue on the Sabbath and he began to teach, preach. That's what he normally did. And his sermon is so powerful because of the work of the Holy Spirit that people were astonished at his teaching. They're, in, they're stunned. They're shocked. They're overwhelmed. What is this? We haven't heard the word with authority like this before. We call this in uh, pastoral preaching circles, we call it unction. Have you ever heard the word unction? Don't, don't ask me to define it for you, okay? Because I have no idea what that word means. I just know it when I see it, when I experience it, when unction happens. It's, it's, you'll know it when unction is occurring. Let me ask you this way. Have you guys ever heard the word preached? You're sitting there listening to someone preach the word of God in such a manner that you're astonished and that you think to yourself, man, he preaches with authority. And you're cut to the heart and God changes you. Ever that happen? That's unction. Get it? Okay, there's your definition. And this unction, I pray, happens every week at Sovereign Grace. I pray the unction of the Holy Spirit is on the preaching every week. But I can guarantee you this, it's always on Jesus' ministry. Always. He always preached with unction. This is the king of kings preaching about his kingdom and it strikes everyone in the synagogue. But not everyone is happy about it. They're all amazed, but not everyone's happy. Look at verse 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. See, this man with the demon sort of bursts out in rage. I want you to think about this scene, okay? Think about the scene. He comes into a synagogue. Here's a man sitting quietly in the synagogue. Seems fine. He's preaching the Word of God. The place is blown away by the authority with which Jesus preaches because the Holy Spirit is attending to his ministry in such a powerful way that it's cutting everyone to the heart. And this man hears it and suddenly stands up or whatever and starts yelling out, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. If you come to destroy us, right, I know who you are. Starts yelling this out. And the question I have is, is, is this guy always in the synagogue every week? In other words, has he been come, I mean, why did he show up that day? It seems that this guy has been going to synagogue every week. Quietly sitting there. And it seems that what happens is Jesus comes in the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit and he's preaching the Word of God and as the Word of God penetrates deep into this man's heart, it brings rage against Jesus. And the demons respond. And as I'm reading this and thinking through this scene, I'm thinking to myself, could people be sitting in our congregation every Sunday who in some way are under the oppression and influence of a demon it's possible it's possible it's happening in this synagogue and perhaps that's happening and therefore i pray i pray that by the preaching of the word of god in the power of the holy spirit you will encounter have an encounter with jesus that will expose what's going on in your life and deliver you from that demonic influence I pray for. 
I pray Jesus will claim you as he claimed this man. Look how he claims him, verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. What's interesting is that the demon, when he comes out of this man, throws the man to the ground. And part of the fullness of Jesus' miracle is when the demon throws him to the ground, the man, no harm comes to the man. But isn't it interesting that when the word of God penetrates this man's heart and the demon responds and Jesus lays claim to this man and says he's mine, get out of him, that the demon instantly decides to throw the man to the ground. What's that about? We see that in more than one place in the Gospels. These demons have the tendency to throw someone to the ground when they're delivered. And it seems to be because Satan and sin have no true love for us. I want you to hear that because I don't think the demon-possessed man was objecting to the demon being in his life. I don't even know if he knew he was demonically oppressed in some way. I'm not sure he was totally aware of it. I have no idea. The text just doesn't tell me. Here's what I know. In some way, this man was infatuated with sin. He was enslaved to it in some area. And somehow, he became demon-possessed or oppressed, or however you put it. It's happened to him. And when Jesus comes on the scene and the Word of God hits this man, the demon objects strenuously. And Jesus delivers him, and the man throws him to the ground. So here's what happens with sin. What happens with sin is we, it's, it's like, as the Proverbs call it, like an adulterous woman. Right? It personifies sin like an adulterous woman. And what happens with sin is, that we think that as this adulterous woman of sin lures us over, that it's for us in some way, that it really loves us, that it's good for us. And so we chase that woman, don't we? And she, we go into her house, we have dinner with her, and she seduces us, and she destroys us, and she wrecks our soul. But we think in some way it's good for us. We, don't, we, we choose sin all the time because we think in some way it's good for us. We like it. It appeals to us but it doesn't love you. It hates you, and it will destroy you. And Jesus, as he casts this person out, he sees this lack of true love, this demon who hates this man, throw him to the ground because the man is no longer useful to him. Hear that? You know, it it reminds me of how our love can often look. Just as an aside, I'm just going to take this quick aside. As long as you're useful to me, I love you. But once you aren't useful to me anymore, you're discarded. Right? Pat Robertson, I don't guys know who Pat Robertson is. Pat Robertson said one of the most terrible things I think I've ever seen come out of the mouth of a pastor on television. He was on his show, The 700 Club, and he was being asked a question. A man had written in for his friend, or a woman for his friend, I don't remember what it is, but about a man whose wife had Alzheimer's. And the letter went something like this. My friend's wife has Alzheimer's. Has Alzheimer's. She has that, and he feels like she's dead, so he's dating again. And he wants to be able to divorce her because she's really like a dead person. He just doesn't, he, he doesn't really want to give his life there anymore, so he wants to go out and find another one. Is that okay? And Pat Robertson says, you know, 
When someone has Alzheimer's, it's terrible, and I feel sympathetic, and he did all sort of pastoral mumbo-jumbo. And then he turns and says, but it's, it's really like she's dead, so it's okay for him to divorce her and find another wife. In other words, she's not useful to him anymore. So it's okay for him to discard her and go get another woman. Listen, that's the advice a demon gives. Hear that? That's demonic. And that's the way we see these demons treat people. In some way they act like, don't you love it? You know I love you. You love me. And then as soon as Jesus grabs hold of them, throw them to the ground. You're not useful to me anymore. See the picture here? Jesus' preaching of the gospel and the power of the Spirit brings out a strong reaction. Every time. Verse 36. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. So we see the different reactions to him. Some opposition, some excitement. Look at the second scene. second scene is Peter's mother-in-law. Verse 38. Peter's mother-in-law. And he, that's Jesus, arose and left the synagogue. This was probably lunchtime. What happened is Simon Peter probably said, come over to my house and let's have lunch. Okay? And they entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And it's important here because there are two Greek words for fever. Medically, there's one which is a low fever. It's not really life-threatening. It's a low And the other is a high fever. And that's a life-threatening kind of fever. It's very sick. And she has the high fever. Okay, in some way her life is threatened with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he, Jesus, stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her and immediately she rose and began to serve them. See, Jesus rebukes Peter's mother-in-law's sickness and she's healed. Incidentally, Peter was married. That's why he has a mother-in-law. Right? To the Pope's chagrin. So he rebukes Peter's mother-in-law's sickness, and she's healed. And her response is interesting, isn't it? What does she do in response? She immediately rose and began to serve him and others. She served them. I mean, isn't that the proper response to the gospel? Isn't that what it is? Jesus has forgiven our sin, taken our shame, conquered all that stands against us, and we had to do nothing but receive this gift of grace. And so we respond with gratitude, don't we? There's no more fear or guilt or shame in Christ, and so all we desire to do is serve him, and we serve him by serving others. And that's what Peter's mother-in-law immediately does. It's a different response to her than the guy in the synagogue, or to him than the guy in the synagogue gave, isn't it? Third scene, verse 40, the healings and exorcisms he does. Verse 40, now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. 
Here's what happens. This is a Sabbath morning. He goes into the synagogue and preaches, exercises a demon out of a man. Then he goes over to Peter's mother with over to Peter's house where his mother-in-law was, who's sick, and he's there and he heals her from an illness that probably is is in some way life-threatening. Heals her. And then all of a sudden word gets out. That's in the afternoon. Word gets out by the evening all kinds of people are coming to him looking for healing. And he's laying hands on all of them and healing them. And he's also delivering people from all kinds of demonic oppression and possession. He's just out doing this work. And literally as he's doing it, all hell is breaking loose. Jesus is silencing these demons as they're coming again and again. Why is he doing it? For two reasons probably. One, he didn't really want demonic endorsement. I know who you are. You're the Son of God. You're the Christ. Right? That's sort of like, I'm going to run for president and Hitler endorsed me. He's going to be a great president. Right? That, that doesn't go over well, right? Okay? The other issue is, is that he, he, he didn't want the messianic fervor to rise in the area because the Jews had attached so much stuff to what it means to be the Messiah. They thought he's going to be the coming king. He didn't want them to usher in some political kingdom. He needed to work and teach and explain to them what he's there for before he gets to that point. So he silences them. But in doing these healings and exorcisms, Jesus is demonstrating that he's destroying Satan and that he's reversing the effects of the fall. That's what he's doing. And he's giving people a taste of his kingdom. Just a small taste, but a taste. Fourth scene, Jesus' departure from Capernaum. And when it was day, so that was in the evening, the next morning he gets up. That's the Sabbath, so Sunday morning, okay? Sunday morning he gets up. He departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Come with us. Come heal more of us. Come help us out. But he said to them, verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. See, Jesus knew that he didn't come for the purpose of lining everyone up in a particular town and just healing them all. It's not why he came. He came to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's why he came. That's the primary thrust of Jesus' mission. Yes, Jesus is concerned about people's needs in the here and now. He's concerned about that. But that's not what he's preeminently concerned with. He's preeminently concerned with the eternal needs of people, isn't he? So he left to preach the gospel in other towns. We're commanded to take the gospel out as well, aren't we? As ambassadors of reconciliation, ambassadors of Christ, we're commanded to take the gospel message to others. Not only to our neighbors, but to all the peoples of the world. And we do that first and foremost by making the gospel known to people. We tell people about Jesus. Do we help people with their physical needs? For sure. Their here and now temporal needs? Absolutely. But our preeminent concern is that they're saved. Now what I want to do is I want to take all four scenes together. You've seen the four scenes. I want to take them together and I want to look at the big picture. So why do people react so strongly to Jesus? And in doing so, what I want to do is I want to make three short observations, okay? Three of them that come through these passages. First one is this. You guys notice that the demons appear in great number? Did you notice that as we're reading through? The demons are appearing like crazy. And, and if, you re- if you've read the whole Bible, if you read it 
fairly frequently, which I encourage you to do, you'll find that demons don't appear very much in all of Scripture. They appear very rarely, actually. Pretty infrequently did you ever see demons coming and showing up. But in Jesus' case, he shows up and the demons are in great number. Why? Why does that happen? Could it be because the king, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Holy One who's come to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom has arrived? Could it be that? And the demons are freaking out because they know what that means for them? And therefore they're, they're aligning against Him? See, the demonic reaction to Jesus speaks loudly to who Jesus is and what Jesus has come for, doesn't it? Look at what we're told in chapter 3, verse 21 and 22 about who He is and what He's come for. If you look at verse 21 and 22, at the end of what, well, I'll just look at verse 22. And the Holy Spirit descended on Him. I read this earlier. Holy Spirit descended on Him, bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I'm well pleased. Look at this man who is appearing. The Holy Spirit filled and dwelt Son of God has come to the scene. If you look at chapter 4, verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, in other words, even the devil has heard this pronouncement and is challenging it. Go down to chapter 4, verse 17 through 21. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me. To, that anointed me. That's the Messiah. That's that word. He's christened Him. He's the Messiah. To proclaim good news to the poor, He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Captives to who? And what? Sin and Satan. And recovery side of the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he rolls up the scroll and says, today this is Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. If you go down to chapter 4, verse 34, when the demon calls him out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? What is the demon telling you there? He recognizes that when the king comes, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and the power of the Holy Spirit, this day, this kingdom of the Son is arriving. And that means the destruction for the demons. That means the end for them. Have you come to destroy us? We know the word is that you're coming to destroy us. Look, the demons are familiar with the Bible. So you guys know? Okay? They even believe there's God. They don't like Him. They believe in Him. They're not trusting Him for their salvation. But they know He's there. James chapter 2 is clear about that. They know what the story says, that when this man comes, the Messiah, it's the end for them. And they are strenuously objecting. Verse 41, And the demons came out, also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. And then in verse 43, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. In other words, the reason there's such reaction on the part of the demons is because they know who's come. 
That's why there's so much opposition to Jesus. Because when Jesus as the Messiah arrives, the demons know who he is. And listen, if you're caught in your sin and you love your sin and you're trapped in it, you know who he is too, and you don't like him either. You don't like him either. Because he's come to make a definitive break, and he said, this is the kingdom of God. You're in the kingdom of darkness. Come out of it through me. People aren't interested in that. Some people are. That's why they're excited. Some people are not. Goes on, second observation. You notice that Jesus rebukes. That word rebukes the sickness of Peter's mother-in-law. If you look there in verse 38, and he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. That's an interesting word to use. He rebukes it. Why, why does Jesus do that? Well, some have speculated that's because the sickness is demonic. But the text doesn't give any indication that this is a demonic sickness. So what's going on? It seems to be that Jesus has personified illness. And he rebukes it. Why? What is the text telling us about Jesus? It's telling us he came in the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim good news. Good news that changes everything. It tells us he's the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Kings, who reverses all all things that are wrong. Do you hear that? This sickness comes from the same place that demon possession comes from. Where does it come from? It comes as a result of the fall and sin. And so he rebukes it in the same way he rebukes a demon. Jesus is rebuking sickness because he's come to reverse the curse of the fall. Hear that? He's come to end the reign of sin and death, and healing is a taste of that. Third observation, notice that Jesus isn't as interested in healing people as he is in proclaiming the gospel. Notice that? He's not as interested in healing people as he is in proclaiming the gospel. He departs from them, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving, but he said to them, verse 43, I must preach the, go the good news of the kingdom or the gospel of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For this purpose I was sent. I was sent for this purpose. Why would Jesus leave when there are so many people clamoring for healings? Can you imagine if being, being his apostles or disciples at the time? You're some of the group that follows him around. You're his friends. Now, they haven't, you know, officially, we don't have the story yet. That comes next where they're officially called out as sort of his emissaries or disciples. But they've been, they've been following around for a better part of a year at this point. Okay? I mean, can you imagine being these guys who've been following around for the better part of a year? He starts healing people, and all these crowds are coming. Now, if you're following a, a pastor who's having this kind of incredible ministry, and he says, you know what? I'm going to leave and go to a desolate place, and, and then I'm going to go to other towns and preach. You're going to be like, what are you doing? Don't you see the crowds? Don't you care about the fact these people are sick? Aren't you going to heal them? You're going to leave at the height of your popularity? What's that about? You don't care about these people? Do you have no compassion? See, it's, it's not that Jesus lacks compassion. It's not why he's leaving. It's because Jesus realizes that he's been sent by the Father to do something far more important than heal people of physical disease or cast out demons. So he doesn't want to heal people just in the here and now. He wants to heal people eternally. 
He's come to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. See, Jesus' miracles, as we go through the gospel, I want you to get a hold of this. Jesus' miracles are never primarily done as acts of compassion, although they are acts of compassion. And they're never primarily done to show his power, although they do show his power. They're primarily a demonstration that with Jesus, with the king, so comes the kingdom. Hear that? What does that mean? What does it mean, so comes the kingdom? Why preach the gospel of the kingdom of God? It means that God created us. Let me explain this as simply as I can. God created us to be his people. Created us to be his people. And he created us to be his people who live in his place. Or in his presence. And he created us to be his people who live in his place or his presence under his rule and blessing. Let me give you the picture of that. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Adam was God's people. You might say, well, that's, that's, you're using a singular and a plural together. That sounds strange grammatically. It does. But the point is Adam is corporately representing all of us. Adam is God's people. And he's in God's place. Where? The Garden of Eden, right? In presence. And he's under God's rule and blessing. Eat from this tree and you'll have life. Eat from all the other trees, but don't eat from that one or you'll die under his rule and blessing. God is the king. So he's pe- his people in his place under his rule and blessing. Adam and Eve sinned. They fell into sin. And what happened? They were no longer God's people. They were kicked out of God's place. And they were no longer under God's rule and blessing, but they were under the curse, weren't they? See, we fell into sin. And instead of belonging to the kingdom of God anymore, where Adam and Eve were, now, now we belong to the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom where Satan resides. The kingdom of God's enemies under the curse and corruption of sin. That is the natural state of mankind as a result of Adam. It's a very unnatural state for mankind to be in, but as a result of what Adam did, that's our state. We're supposed to be people, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing, but instead of being in the kingdom of God, as unbelievers, we're outside of it because of sin. Yet God promised to send Jesus to be his people, right? Why do you think Jesus is called the Son of God? Because he is eternally the Son, but it also picks up on language from the Old Testament. In Hosea 11.1, Israel is called the Son of God. That takes you back to Exodus 4, where it talks about Israel being the Son of God. And when you get into Matthew, you see something interesting happening. As Jesus comes up out of Egypt, and they quote Hosea 11.1, pointing back to Exodus 4, out of Egypt I've called my son because Jesus is the true son of God, the true people of God that Israel failed to be and that Adam failed to be. He's the people of God. And Jesus is in the presence or place of God. It says in John 1, 1, what? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And if you go to John 1, 14, and the word, that being Jesus, became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. That word is the word tabernacled. Why is that word picked up? What is the tabernacle in the Old Testament? That's where God's Shekinah glory dwells. That's where his presence is. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. The presence of God is with Jesus. So he's God's people, his son. He's in God's place or presence. And he is under God's rule and blessing. What does he say? It's always my food to do my Father's will. That's all I do is his will. And what does the Father do with Jesus after his death and resurrection? He vindicates him 
by the Spirit, saying, this is in fact my Son. In other words, Jesus becomes what Adam failed to be, what Israel failed to be, and what we all fail to be. Because he is the king, and he is bringing in the kingdom. That's why John the Baptist can say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Why is it at hand? Because when the king comes, the kingdom comes with him. And so, that's the storyline you see coming up here. And Jesus, the king, goes to the cross and pays the penalty that's due to all of us for our sin. For our, our failure to be God's people. In God's place, under God's rule and blessing. He pays for all of it. All of our sin on the cross. And He raises from the dead, conquering sin and death. And then He sends He ascends to the right hand of the Father and where He rules and reigns and intercedes for us forever and sends His Spirit into us so that we can be children of God. So that we can be the people of God. That's what the church is, isn't it? The people of God. And if you go to the end of the story, Revelation, where are the people? What are the people? They are the people of God. The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven as a bride. Why? Because the new Jerusalem is referring to Israel and that's the church coming down as a bride. We're the people of God. It goes all the way through the story. We're his people in his son. It's how we're his people. And what else do you see in Revelation? You see that God is dwelling with us. We're in his place. And what else is there? The tree of life that was in the garden, isn't it? And the picture is drawn together for us. So we recognize we're God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. That's true of the church even now. Even though it'll be fulfilled fully at the end, it's true now. We're God's people in God's place. That's why he can say that you are the temple. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. And we're under his rule and blessing because we're in his son. All we get is declaration of righteousness. The work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Eternal rewards. Hear that? That's what Jesus is bringing. That's what Paul means in Colossians 1, 13 and 14 when he says this, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's talking to the church. Delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. That means we're bought back from the kingdom of darkness. We're owned by him. The forgiveness of sins. So here's the question. How do you respond to this? Now, I'm not asking you, theoretically, how should people respond. I'm asking, how do you respond? Have you looked to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you looked to Jesus for redemption, to be brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light? The kingdom of his beloved son? Or do you love the darkness more than the light? Are you infatuated with sin in such a degree that you'll remain in its grip? Does the adulterous woman of sin have a grip on your heart that you don't want to flee from? See, I want to be clear about this. Sin will only destroy you. The adulterous woman doesn't love you. She is just using you. The darkness wants to keep you from seeing the truth. Do you understand that? from seeing the light of the gospel, the good news of the glory of Christ. You need to look to Jesus 
If you look to him, you'll be saved. But let's be clear, Jesus is to be looked at as your Savior and your King. He is never just a nice man that you can think well of. You're either for him or you're against him. You're either his friend or you're his enemy. You're either alive in him or you're dead in sin. He's either your Savior and your Lord or he will be your judge. Today is the day of salvation, so we need to look to Jesus and be saved. Look to him. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would be a people who look to your Son, who recognize that the whole story is about him. It's all the Old Testament's pointing forward to him and all the New Testament's pointing back at him and forward to his return at the same time. Father, we pray that we would be a people who react well to him, that we would love him and look to him for salvation, rejoice in him and be thankful for him. Father, anyone in here who is in darkness, whose eyes are blind and ears are shut, they're deaf, who's dead in their sin, Father, we pray that you would quicken their spirit, that you'd give them life. You'd work in them so they would see the light of the good news, the glory of Jesus. They would know that he is their Savior and King. They would know that his cross, his death on their behalf is their only hope. His resurrection is their only hope of life. They would look to him and be saved. Father, we pray for the rest of us that as we walk through this gospel, as we see increasingly the glorious picture of your son Jesus, that we would rest in him, that we would rejoice in him, that we'd be a people who want to proclaim him to others because he is our hope. He, He is our refuge. He is our reward. We pray this for the exaltation of your name. Amen.